So our topic today is a biblical perspective on ADHD, which stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And um, I think the, the diagnosis, I, I said even on the last week when I talked about autism, um, I think I'm more, a little bit more skeptical on this one, even though I'm, I will speak more on the medical side today. Um, it, with autism, I think we can find more of a cause and, and an underlying cause uh, in terms of, you know, genetic uh, mutation, uh, a problem in neurodevelopment. Um, here, you might, but very, <laughs> it's less often that you would as you would in autism. So, I just wanted to give this heads up. Um, but we'll really focus what a scripture will address this, even though it might, there might be some organic cause behind it. All right, so let's start with a word of prayer, and then um, we'll get right into it. Our gracious Father, thank you so much for this uh, morning that you get to worship you and to learn your word that is sufficient for all problems of life and struggles that we face. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, bring clarity um, as we think about these things. May we be wise as serpents um, in this matter. I do pray, Father, that we also give us a heart of compassion uh, for those that struggle and patience uh, to bear up with one another and even to be a support to families that have uh, great struggles. Uh, we pray all these things because we're confident that you answer and that you care for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So as a way of introduction, you know, the estimated number of children aged from the from three to 17 years uh, of age ever diagnosed with ADHD, according to a national survey of parents, one in, a, in six million 9.8% using a data from 2016 to 2019. These are data from the CDC, some statistics that they provide on their website, and they say that 60%, 62% of people diagnosed with ADHD are on medication. Now, mind you, um, within this group, 62, that is taking medication, um, 18% of them is um, two to five years of age. 60, 90% of them are six to 11 years of age. And the ages 12 to 17 is 62%. Um, amongst that population, they are uh, on medication. So for children six year, and, and the reason why you'll see with kids below six years of age, not taking that much medications because the American Academy of Pediatrics does not allow that. It is not a prescription, um, not the best therapy. The other kids, though, will take both the medication and behavioral therapy. For children under the sixth age, a behavioral therapy is recommended as the first line of treatment. That's how they deal with that. All right, now, I, I just want to say this. Um, because it's, a, it's one of the topics where I think people can be too dogmatic. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, don't, don't go there for medication. Um, I, I believe, uh, in a sense, 
depending on where your heart is, that medication can be a Christian freedom. Um, as long as you know that spiritual problems are being dealt with spiritually. Um, now, I do, as a pharmacist, say that I don't think it's a wise choice because of the side effects, because of you know what you're encouraging the kids to see. And we're going to see some of those things here. Um, and hopefully you will be convinced that medication is not a great option for, for that. But I do recall as a child, you know, that it, ADHD, it wasn't a very popular diagnosis in Brazil back when I was growing up. But I do remember uh, just my cousins making joke, make, making jokes about me, you know, oh, well, he should be an Adderall or, you know, just this medications. And, you know, I didn't even know what that was about. And now reading about that, I, I realize, you know, I was a very active child. Not that I was inattentive, you know, I, I, I would pay attention to details. Today, I don't know where that went, but I just remember how I was uh, so active and annoyingly so, asking questions. Oh my goodness, my family hated. Oh, there comes Ronaldo with his hundred questions. <laughs> And at some point, my mom actually tested me. She did, you know, you know, back then, I don't know what, what were all the ways of diagnosis that they did, but they did an electroencephalogram, which basically is measuring your uh, brain waves to see, you know, if they're low or whatever it is. And I came out, I came out okay. So my mom rested her case and didn't <laughs> pursue any further um, problem. Um, I'm listening to something hinging here. I don't know what it is. It's just the wind or hopefully, hopefully it's fine. <laughs> In any case, um, see, distracted. <laughs> just gave you. <laughs> In any case, uh, the Lord was gracious, you know, and my parents, you know, thinking about even education, he, they, they didn't have much education. I told you once that my mom learned how to read when she was 40 years old. Um, as she was, when she came to Christ and this lady in our church taught her how to read. And the, the only book that she ever read was the Bible, really. It's, it's pretty amazing how the Lord used that. So, I, I, you know, I didn't have the, the pleasure and the privilege of having a parent to help me with my homework. You know, I, I had nobody else, <laughs> so I had to do it. Um, and the Lord was gracious with that, and, um, but it's not the case with every parent. And I think we should be um, very patient and compassionate whenever we see, you know, kids that are, they have a little bit more difficulty to be an encouragement to them and not just to say, oh, this is just lies and, you know, don't, don't go there. Scripture is plenty of help, but we always ought to speak the truth in love. So that's one of the takeaways that I, I had by preparing for this lesson. So, all right. So the secular understanding of ADHD, um, we'll see the DSM diagnostic criteria. They have two major categories of diagnosis. One is inattention, and the other one is hyperactivity or impulsivity. And then based on that, they would have, you know, classify these children or adults within 
these uh, three categories. One is inattentive, inattentive without being hyperactive, and then you would have hyperactive without being attentive, and then you have a combination of both, which is called ADHD, um, that have, combines both. So with inattention, um, six or more symptoms of inattention for children to age up to 16 years, or five or more for adolescents age 17 years and older or adults, which, you know, so this is very tricky because then you reduce the number, the older they're getting, you reduce the number of symptoms that they need to be classified into this. And I guarantee you, as you start reading these things, you're probably gonna think, I am, I have this. <laughs> often fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork, at work, or with other activities. Often has trouble holding attention on tasks and play activities. Often does not seem to listen when he's spoken to directly. Often does not follow through on instructions and fail to finish his schoolwork, chores, or duties in the workplace. Example, loses focus or gets sidetracked. I'm going to get sidetracked here. I just <laughs> remember uh, working at the TMS library, at, you know, at the seminary. And, he, you know, one of the things that we had to do was to put the books back on the shelf. And, I mean, we think, we're talking here about millions of books, you know, in that library. And I, I start shelving, you know, and I, I pick up a title and it's like, oh, interesting, they have a book on this? And then you just start reading and then go, oh, I have to, what am I doing? And then continue shelving. And the next book was like, wow, that is so cool. There is a book on this topic. <laughs> and I kept going. And it took me so long. I remember my boss was saying, why take you so long to shelve those, you know, just a few books you have? Well, I'm learning still. <laughs> And then that, they, they came up with an idea, I guess, I wasn't the only one that had that problem, uh, that they made a competition who would shelve books quicker. So you would have the count the number of books and how quick you took to shelve it. So that was their solution. How often has, uh, often has trouble organizing tasks and activities? Uh, often avoids, dislikes, or is reluctant to do tasks that require mental effort over a longer period of time, such as schoolwork or homework. Often loses uh, things necessary for tasks, activities, such as school materials, pencils, books, jewels, wallets, keys, paperwork, eyeglasses, mobile telephones. Is often easily distracted, is often forgetful of daily in daily activities. Now, as for the hyperactivity or impulsivity, the same criteria goes. You know, six um, or more symptoms for people under 16 years of age, and then five or more for 17. And then these symptoms have to be present for at least six months. That's their magic number of months. You know, you have that's you know that's the cutting edge. If you're just five months, and yeah. Often fidgets, fidgets or with or taps with his hand and squirms in seat. Um, often leaves seat in situations where remaining seated is expected. Often runs about or climbs in situations where it is inappropriate. Adolescents or adults may be limited to feeling restless. Often unable to play or take part in leisure activities quietly. 
is often on the go and acting, acting as if driven by a motor. I remember that my parents making comments like this. This, where are your batteries? Where do we turn you off? <laughs> often talks excessively, often blurts out an answer before a question has been completed, often has trouble waiting their turn, and often interrupts or intrudes on others. Um, get into conversation, you know, gets right into conversations without um, being requested for. So um, I put this picture there, you know, of parents struggling and, and just looking exhausted because I think, you know, most of the times when you're helping a family or an adult, you know, that that's, you know, especially with parents of young kids, that, that's their description. <laughs> You know, they're just exhausted the whole time uh, in, in trying to, to be a help for their kids. So, several inattentive or hyperactive impulse symptoms were present before uh, the age of 12 years. And so that is one of the things that you, you got to be aware of, um, is today we have a lot of adults being diagnosed with that. But in their own, in their own estimates, those symptoms should be present even, you know, um, before the age of 12, it's not like, oh, all of a sudden I just got lazy and I'm going to have a label that justifies my behavior. Several symptoms present, uh, are present in two or more settings, such as home or school or work, uh, with friends and health relatives and other activities. And there is a clear evidence that symptoms interfere or reduce the quality of social, school, or f work function. And they're not better explained by other DSM diagnostics. Now, I want to give a little uh, scientific evaluation, and I, I hope you bear it here with me because I think this information uh, is very valuable for those that are uninformed. Um, the inventor of ADHD, uh, Death Bad Confession, this is, uh, I even put a picture there, Dr. Um, American psychiatrist Leon, Leon Eisenberg. He was born in 1922, um, the son of a Russian immigrant, some uh, Russian immigrants, who was the scientific father of ADHD. He was said at the age of 87, this is seven months before he died, <clears throat> that ADHD is a prime example of a fictitious disease. I mean, here's the man who created, you know, made up this diagnosis acknowledging um, that this is not a real disease. So since 1968, however, some 40 years later, Leon Eisenberg uh, disease haunted the diagnostic and the statistic manuals, first as hyperkinetic reaction of childhood. That, that was the name he coined first and then it, you know, evolved to ADHD. So the term attention deficit disorder was made official in 1980 when it appeared in that year's edition of the DSM, the label changed then to ADHD to include the hyperactivity um, seven years later. So subsequent editions have steadily loosened the definition, have included the more symptoms, uh, have included more age groups, <clears throat> and have skyrocketed accordingly from 7.8% in 2003 of the population was affected by it, 9.5 in 2007, <clears throat> and then 11% of the population in 2011 was affected by it. And I'm sure 
that there is more um, if you were to have a survey made today. That's one in nine children, two-thirds of them being boys, who are being slapped with the ADHD label. Two-thirds of these children have been prescribed an stimulant. The use of ADHD medications in Germany rose in 18 years from 34 kilograms, and if you do your math, uh, that is twice in pounds. <laughs> in 1993, to um, 1,760 kilograms of um, medication in 2011, which is a 51-fold increase in sales. That is significant, just in a couple of decades. In the United States, every 10th boy among 10-year-olds are already um, consuming ADHD medication on a daily basis with an increasing tendency. And after all, um, Eisenberg was a member of the Organization Committee for Women and Medicine Conference in Bahamas in November 2009 through, uh, in 2006. This is what, when it happens. So, and what I'm going to read here is I want to show you that there is a, a close connection with the people that made the diagnosis of ADHD with support of the pharmaceutical industry. So they're paid conferences, they're paid to even write their papers, all being subsidized by the pharmaceutical industry, which begs the question, you know, isn't this a conflict of interest that I am creating, I'm, cre I'm supporting someone to create a diagnosis that I'm providing the drug for. So such groups marketed the diagnosis of uh, ADHD in the service of the pharmaceutical market and tailor-made for him on the propaganda in public relations. They found, and this is interesting, they found that of the 170 DSM panel members, 95% of the people that wrote the, the DSM had one or more financial associations with companies in the pharmaceutical industry. 100% of the members of the panels on the mood disorders, such as schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders, had financial ties to drug companies. In the next edition of the, the manual, the situation is unchanged. Out of the 137 members that wrote the DSM-5 uh, panel members, had posted a disclosure statement that 56% reported ties to the pharmaceutical industry. So the very vocabulary of psychiatry is now defined at all levels by the pharmaceutical industry. Said Dr. Erwin Savdnik, an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California in Los Angeles. So this is well paid. You know, this is a well-paid industry. Um, and, and here is an example. The assistant director of the pediatric uh, psychopharmacology unit at Massachusetts <laughs> General Hospital, an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, received one person, $1 million in earnings from drug companies between 2000 and 2007. In any case, no one um, can easily, this is an article by uh, Kyle Smith uh, from the, well, actually, no. This one, Eddie, is, is a, he's a writer. 
on, um, does these surveys on uh, medical things. But he says, you know, AG, and he quotes the, the founder of ADHD saying, this is a prime example of a fictitious disease. So another point here, another article from the New York Post, um, hasty diagnosis, har they are harmful for children. You know, these things are taken so lightly. A school uh, teacher can tell the parents, you have to take your child. Um, I won't allow him to come back to our school if he didn't get a diagnosis. Um, it's just threatening um, to parents if they don't do what they're asking. Um, but I, I found this research very interesting. Neurolo neurologist Richard Saul um, wrote a book uh, called ADHD Does Not Exist, The Truth About Attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Disorder. Uh, it's been a very controversial book. And after a long career of treating patients complaining of such problems as such as short attention spans or inability to focus, Saul is convinced that ADHD is a collection of symptoms not a disease, and it shouldn't be listed in the um, APA Diagnostic Statistic Manual. Treating ADHD as a disease is a huge, huge mistake, he says. Imagine walking into a doctor's office with a severe abdominal pain, and the doctor just looks at you, oh, great, I'm going to prescribe some painkillers for you. And then a few hours later, the person die of appendicitis. That you know, that quick diagnosis without, oh, it's just the symptoms, that's what I'm going to treat. Well, you have these symptoms, great, I'm going to treat you for these symptoms. But what is the underlying cause? What is, what is bringing that? A disease always has a pathology or, you know, a, 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 an explanation of a disease, has a description of a disease, that's what pathology is. So there is a change in the body at the cell level that causes malfunction. We may not be able to describe it, we may not be able to find it, but it, it must exist. And most of the time, we can demonstrate the change which allows us to create medication or surgical corrections to fix the problem. In medicine, understanding the pathology has always been the key for a good treatment. Since we do not have a pathology for ADHD defined, we do not have tests that can make the diagnosis. No lab tests is done to show that someone has ADHD. The result is that people have, with real problems are mislabeled and treated with medicine that can cause them more harm than good, says Dr. Charles Hodges. Um, then coming back to Dr. Saul, and this guy is an unbeliever as far as I know. Uh, he says that most of his time that he spent finding out the problem of a childhood adult that had and helping them to deal instead of labeling them with ADHD, providing a prescription. He gave examples of children with vision problems, students who were bored at their subject. They just didn't like the subject. Adults who struggled with caffeine use or sleep deprivation, as many of other things incorrectly labeled as ADHD. One by one, nearly all, he says, near, uh, one by one, nearly all of Saul's patients uh, turned out to have some disease other than ADHD, such as Tourette syndrome, OCD, Fragile X syndrome, autism, fetal alcohol syndrome, learning disabilities, substance abuse, or even giftedness. They were just really smart kids that couldn't um, control their uh, way of thinking. 
Saul describes the diagnosis of ADHD as uneasy to reach for crutch. He says, I know far too many colleagues, the doctor says, who are willing to write a prescription for a stimulant with only a cursory examination of the patients, such as a two-minute checklist. Two minutes. For ADHD, two minutes to jot down a prescription may lead to years of consequences, he says. Short-term side effects of stimulants include loss of sleep, increased anxiety, irritability, mood problems, and over the long term, the use of these drugs can lead to unhealthy weight loss, poor concentration, memory problems, even reduced life expectancy, and self-destructive behaviors, not excluding suicide. So we're talking about something here that will have life, you know, life, lifelong lasting um, effects. Most of these kids that is started with Ritalin or Adderall, they will, have be, they will be diagnosed with other um, mental disorders and it will have been prescribed more of that. So other doctors, um, this is merely, merely Wedge, is a PhD, is a family therapist and author of the book, A Disease Called Childhood, Why ADHD Became an American Pandemic. She wrote a polemic article um, on the blog Psychology Today, which said, why French kids don't have ADHD? It, because it's not, it's not a thing in France. Um, and, this, and this article has 15 million views already, and it caused quite a... a, a concern for the psychology um, realm of, you know, influence. She said, French, chi uh, French children psychiatrists, on, on the other hand, they view AJG as a medical condition that has uh, psych psychosocial and situational causes. Instead of treating children's focusing on behavioral problems with drugs, French doctors prefer to look for underlying issue that is causing the child's distress, not in the child's brain, but in the child's social context. What are the influences that are, are bringing that about? Then they choose to treat the underlying social context problem with psychotherapy or family counseling. The focus of the French system, it is identifying and addressing the underlying social uh, causes of the children's symptom, not on finding the best pharmacological band-aids with which to mark the symptoms. Because that's all about masking the symptoms. Oh, the child is squirming, the child is too active, we just want to give them the tranquilizer. Uh, basically what it is. To the extent that the French clinicians are successful at finding and repairing what has gone awry, all right, uh, with a child's social context, few children qualify for the AGHD diagnosis. Moreover, the definition of the disease is not as broad as an American system, which, in, in my view, she says, tends to pathologize much more what its normal childhood behavior. This is normal childhood behavior. This is not a disorder. It thus leads clinicians to give a diagnosis to a much larger number of symptomatic children. The French holistic psychosocial approach also allows for considering nutritional causes for this type of symptoms. Now, and I know, and I heard a lot of people saying like, oh, it's just nutrition. You change the diet and look at those things and, and, and they apply that to everyone. So I wanna just give a warning here. Uh, one of our points will be 
to, you know, take them to the doctor and have them tested for certain things that are causing a, people have allergy to it or having tolerance to it that you might want to adjust the diet, but it is not always related to diet. You know, in the French approach, they do look at that and cite specifically the fact that the behavior of some children is worsened after eating foods with artificial colors, certain preservatives, and or allergens. So clinicians who work troubled children in this country, not to mention parents of many ADHD kids, are well aware of that dietary interventions can sometimes help the children's problems. This is very different than the US, she says. The strict focus is on the pharmaceutical treatment of ADHD and encourages clinicians to ignore the influence of dietary facts on the children's behavior. Now, there were a, a couple of things that I thought it was interesting in this um, uh, study on you know, the HDG, HD kids in France is that the way that their parenting has a great influence on the, you know, the outcome with the children. It says that from time to time, when, from the time that children are born, French parents provide them with what they call cadre, is the word for frame or a structure. Children are not allowed, for example, to eat snack whenever they want. Meal times are at four specific times of the day. French children learn to wait patiently for meals rather than to eat, eating snack foods whenever they feel like it. French babies, too, are expected to conform to limits to set by parents and not by their crying selves. French parents let their babies cry it out for no more than a few minutes, of course, if they're not sleeping through the night at the age of four months. Isn't that interesting? Today, if it's, it is amazing. Oh, you can't have the child. This is child abuse. You're letting them cry. They'll, they'll get tired and they'll fall asleep or, you know. Um, but it's very interesting. The, the two perspectives, you know, and, and the results. They don't accept that diagnosis there. I mean, I'm sure there's parents that will say, oh, no, my child does have this. But it, it is very discouraged. All right, and then one last here. Um, it is medication is more harmful than beneficial. So ADHD is an educationally driven phenomenon. Primary rationale for using amphetamine der derivative medications is that it will improve the mental focus of child allowing them to receive instruction and to learn. Now, I just want to make a comment here. <laughs> I think the irony of it all is they... You know, you would see ads on the TV just saying the horrible things that amphetamines uh, and people there, are drug addicts going to amphetamines, uh, the things that they experience, the damage that it does to the brain. And then in the same token, a few commercials later, you would see them advertising for amphetamines to help children. Like you were, you're just talking about how bad it is and how it is okay to prescribe that with children with those symptoms. So the medicines used to support, uh, to reduce hyperactive behavior disrupts, uh, that disrupts classrooms. Um, so this research made available by the National Bureau of Economic Research commented um, on the Wall Street Journal would indicate otherwise. While teachers and parents may perceive their children are doing better in the long-term study, would indicate that there is little to no educational benefit 
for, from treating boys and girls with medications such as amphetamine derivatives as Ritalin and Adderall. So the basis for the research was a long-term study in, in Quebec that looked at the outcomes of the pharmacy insurance program on the prescribing of a stimulant medication and the effect of medicine on the children who took it. So several things they noted on this study. Instead of seeing an improvement in the outcomes among children treated, the children seemed to struggle, actually, in several areas. Instead of having improved learning, there was a short-term deterioration in academic outcomes among both boys and girls. And boys were more likely to drop out of school, and girls were more likely to be diagnosed with another mental disorder, such as anxiety or depression. So the conclusion of these studies is that substitute for cognitive and behavioral therapy interventions might be necessary for children to learn. They, they said, you know, just take them to a therapist, someone they can talk to, and help them to reframe their thinking in a way that will affect their behavior. Now, for us, biblical counselors, for us Christians, as we know that the Bible does talk about the renewing of the mind and how that affects also our behavior by the putting off and then put on a new actions, right? It, it, it is obvious for us. This is how the Bible teaches us to, 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 to move on. Now let's get to a biblical perspective. Um, and so I might not be able to get all the way to the end of the lesson here, but don't fret. We will come back to it um, following Sunday, and I'll be very practical with very practical guidelines. Um, there is a, uh, two books that I'm going to mention if you're interested in wanting to read. It's a little booklet. I think we have it in the library. Is Parenting Your ADHD Child um, by Rita Jameson. Um, and she's a parent of ADHD children. Um, and, you know, also a teacher uh, in, the, in public school. So she has lots and lots of experience. And what she does is she gets each one of these symptoms that is described by the DSM. And then she explains how the Bible addresses it and gives examples on how you can uh, work with the child. The other book that I'm going to reference to is Teaching Your Child to Pay Attention by Dr. Daniel Berger. And what he does in that book is it's really, really key. Um, it's, it's really going through Proverbs and, and you know, just gleaning principles on how you can teach the child to pay attention. It, you know, even at the DSM, they, they describe that the, the problem is not necessarily the attention. Um, a child that might not be sitting uh, for a school lesson or doing their homework might spend 10 hours playing video games. So the problem is not attention. They can pay attention for 10 hours to the video game. The problem is a selective attention. They're giving attention to what they want to give attention to. So there, there is a training on how you train them and how to engage the senses. And Proverbs use a lot of that, right? You put before your eyes and you put as a necklace in your neck. You, do, you know, it's a whole trying to use the senses on how to engage the child's attention. So don't miss that one. That will be more practical, but I do want to give some principles even now. One, consider the relationship between the body and the mind. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16, I have mentioned that before, talks about the outer person and the inner person. So the Bible is balanced um, when sometimes we're not. We sometimes just want to have a uh, 
black and white answer, you know, cookie cutter formula, is this a behavior issue? Is this a medical issue only? Is it sick, is it sin or sickness? Well, we, we should look through. Although biblical counseling methodology teaches that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, the outer person nevertheless has an influence on the spirit. So scripture always encourages us to seek, seek medical uh, treatment. Jesus implied in his teaching that those who are sick need medical treatment. And so um, if there might be some underlying cause such as vision problems, take them to see your eye doctor, Take them to see if they have any hearing issues. They're not paying attention because they can't listen when you talk to them. Do they have any allergies, possible medication side effects, reading or processing issues, diet deficiencies, or sleep problems? So it might be time-consuming, but with um, children labeled ADHD, the arena of the heart also is to be focused. So we should focus on both. Look you know, have them to have a checkup, a thorough checkup, and see if there's not, not a, a, an underlying cause that might be bringing this about. And then you focus in the heart. Um, it is, um, Dr. Ed Welch says here, um, with many children labeled ADHD, the arena of the heart is ignored, yet it is impossible that some of what we call ADHD is sinful self-indulgence and laziness. It is. It is possible that prominent cause of the behavior is the heart that demands its own way. The truth that is, uh, ADG sits in an intersection where physical and spiritual meet. Like other psychiatric labels, the root cause may be physical or spiritual or can be both. But we focus on the heart. And the reason being is, even if you come about and come across someone that clearly has visual, vision or hearing you know, issues, is that there's still a sinful, that it's, you know, a sinful child that needs shepherding. So although the physical and spiritual categories are distinct, you can see that discerning the way of each one of them contributes to the troublesome behavior, um, and it can be challenging. He gives an example here. Let's say, for example, that you told your child to clean their room, all right? And then in return, 20 minutes later, he's still playing with his toys, and the chaos, the chaos in the room is still there. Is this a spiritual problem? On the surface, it would certainly seem so. The child has violated the command to obey his parents, and yet there might be other explanations. Perhaps the child does not know how to clean his room. He hasn't been taught yet. What, what do you mean by cleaning? Is that, you know, I'm talking about really little children or, you know, for the first time they didn't have that. It's not necessarily a matter of disobedience right away. So the idea might be too general or too abstract for them. Perhaps the room looks perfectly clean to them. You know, some people, they're just used to messiness. And all that, what do you mean by clean? It is clean. And then they would, or they might be distracted by a toy and they forgot what you said. In other words, what you may be seeing is a weakness in the child's ability to follow through with directions rather than over disobedience. There is a difference between telling a child, clean your room, and don't hit your brother. The child has a conscience and intuitively knows that he should not, his, uh, he should not hit others in anger. Such an act would be wrong even if a parent did not say, don't hit. But the child does not have a conscience that says that it is morally wrong to leave an uncapped room. So 
not cleaning the room is not a sin. Disobeying the parents is, and that's why you ought to teach them. Uh, the uncapped room is technically a violation of the commensal uh, obeys one's parents, but in some cases, disobedience um, needs to be looked at. An understanding of the child's heart might ind indicate that the problem is physical limitations, memory problems, or ignorance, not necessarily spiritual rebellion. So I'm not going to go much here in these cases, but uh, no matter what your child's strengths and weaknesses, um, he has the same spiritual problem as everyone else. His heart is at war between selfishness and obedience to Christ. They want their way. Like all of us sinners, we want our way. That's what takes us to sin. The knowledge of Christ consists of learning about the great justice and the love of God displayed in Jesus' death and resurrection. They also need his grace. He says here, both the spiritual and the physical must be takes, taken seriously. If you ignore the spiritual, then there will never be a place for repentance and faith in your child's life. Sinful behavior will be excused if this happens, and the power of the gospel will be ignored. If we ignore the physical or brain-braced strengths and weaknesses, you will never find creative methods you need to help the person to learn. When teaching style is poorly suited to the individual, he or she will soon be, soon be confused and hopeless. And what, it, what does he mean by all of this? Is that child, certain children learn different way. You know, it's kind of the same thing what we talked about with autistic kids. Um, some does, do, do not learn by being quiet in a chair. I, I remember Lindsay talking about this experiment in his school where they had kids to not sit in chairs, but on those big, what do you call it, medicine balls or, you know, those gym balls. And the kids are bouncing around, but they're paying attention. They're listening. They're, they're just focused on what, because they can't, they have to be moving. They have to be doing something. Or they removed all the chairs from the, from the classroom and had them stand and they did the same experiment. This was interesting. There was an experiment made where they did with both children that were not ADHD kids and then kids that had ADHD. The kids that didn't have ADHD did not do well with standing in a classroom. The kids with ADHD did better when they were standing rather than being sitting. So why, why I'm bringing all of this is that before we get on to say, this is a simple behavior, well, could it be that they learn in this way? And how can you still teach the Bible and enforce the spiritual principles uh, by considering their way of learning? You know, Proverbs 22, uh, 6 gets quoted a lot, and as you teach the child in his way, it will never depart from it. I'm not fully convinced that necessarily is talking about their teaching styles, um, you know, leaving a child in their own way is actually dangerous. Proverbs 18 says that wickedness is bound to the heart of a child. So, um, in a sense, we, we do need to uh, enforce that, but obviously I think it's just a matter of knowing, being aware that children learn differently. For you parents that had children with different learning uh, ways, you realize that what worked for one didn't work for the other. Did I, am I speaking anything <laughs> unique here? Any comments or questions so far? All right. B, 
Consider their strengths and weaknesses. Like all children, those labeled ADD have strengths and weaknesses. The strengths uh, might include high level energy, how energy, high energy level, an infectious enthusiasm to certain tasks, unusual creativity and ability to generate ideas, a willingness to take risks, and an outgoing personality. I, you know, the Lord really blessed me as a kid. I had every time I would do like a science project, I would thrive because, you know, I, I just my mind was always running with something. And, and you see that with some of these kids. You just redirect that, you encourage that, you enforce that. Now, there are some weaknesses that sometimes are apparent with ADD-labeled children. They have poor memory for the spoken or written word. They have difficulty sequencing behavior and devising steps to complete a task. Have difficulty establishing priorities. Um, f- one of the major things, procrastination for me, was the struggle because I, I kept thinking about other things that I had to do and I didn't do the thing that was right in front of me. <laughs> um, difficulty with sustained attention when tasks are not intrinsically interesting. Difficulty screening or irrelevant stimuli. Difficulty changing one way of thinking to another. Um, so what are then the scriptures um, helpful with? And this is kind of a given, you know, I, I, I don't even, shouldn't even put that statement there. Scriptures are still sufficient to train up the child, um, train up children to obey and to love the Lord and to serve God. Um, parents are encouraged to train their child in an admonition of the Lord, right? So the first thing is understand the importance of inner convictions and external control. Children need to be taught, and this was written by Pamela uh, Gagnon, doctor. She's a registered nurse, um, also a biblical counselor. She says, uh, children need to be taught inner convictions, and they need to be externally controlled by, in behavior, and they develop self-control. Um, Ephesians 6, 4, instructions to the parents. Fa- parents or fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. In 2 Timothy 3.16, God tells us that the, his word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the men of God may be equipped for every good work. Teach the biblical standard. God has given parents the responsibility to display Christ to their children. Teach children by word and by example, that our goal in life is found in 1 Corinthians 10.31 and 2 Corinthians 5.9, to glorify the Lord and to please him in whatever we do. Um, you know, when you're having conversations with them, oh, I just don't like doing this. I don't, I, I, I just can't do this. I, I, I don't like doing it. Well, sometimes son, sometimes daughter, we have to do things that we don't like because life is not about us doing what we like or don't like. It's about doing what glorifies God. He says that if we drink or we eat or we do anything, we should glorify him. Do you think that you are glorifying God by just being stubborn and refusing to do the things that you do not want to do? I can help you. I can walk you through this process, but I am not going to uh, let you off the hook on this. Um, that's not how I would talk to a little child, but you get the gist of it. 
Believe that change is possible. We need to believe that our children can put off simple thoughts and behaviors, change their thinking by renewing their mind and putting on in God's way. So it's Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. And then train, for, uh, train them for accountability. Dr. Uh, Gagnon says here, and teach parents to, uh, before bringing correction, to hold the child responsible for a particular behavior. The child has the ability to hear and understand, to process your instructions. And B, the child is aware of your expectations and has practiced the specific concrete steps for the behavior. So in other words, make sure that your child is set up for, uh, to be accountable for their behavior. When determining whether we should hold the child accountable for their behavior, it is helpful to consider the difference between child, childishness and foolishness. What does she mean by that? Childishness is innocent immaturity, making childish mistakes, but foolishness is a rebellious intent. They're defying instructions. A passive rebellion can be subtle. Um, just as um, they can give the excuse, I didn't hear you, or I forgot. Silliness, whining, sulking, pouting. Uh, these takes training. Parents must train them before they can expect a behavior. Tell the child that what is expected, explain it to them, then have them explain back to you. Give the child examples on how to do or say something. Have them practice it. Parents can be sure that the child has owned awareness of what the parents expect. And then here's some examples that um, we found from the uh, Dr. Rita Jameson. Um, one of them, when they often fail to give close attention to details and make careless mistakes in social, social work, work, or other activities. Parents who take time to discuss this behavior with their children will often discover wants and desires. The fact that they're not giving attention to a particular task is not because there is a medical condition, is they want to do something else. Why can you spend 10 hours playing video games and you can't spend 15 minutes writing, you know, doing your homework or 30 minutes doing your homework? The problem is not they don't have attention at all, is that their attention is selective. They're giving attention to what they want to give attention to. James 1, 14 to 15 talks about us being entangled and enticed by our own uh, desires, our own lusts. So for instance, the children might have the desire to finish first. Children with this desire often rush through their homework. What is their goal here? I must win. In our day, there are many children with this, that this is our, their goal. Another child, when asked why they rushed to this work, responded, to get the work over with so I can do something that I like. So they'll do the homework real fast and make a bunch of mistakes, but just because they want to get rid of it. The goal is to have the pleasure and ease. The third reason child, uh, children rush is because they want to avoid the consequences of not completing the assignment. While there is nothing intrinsically wrong with winning pleasure or avoiding consequences, we want our children to have a superior goal is to please God. She says, one way to teach children to listen is by asking them to verbally respond each time that they're spoken to. When we acknowledge the person who has spoken and it shows them honor, it can be, can be the beginning of a better listening. When a child habitually does not listen, make sure that you have her attention before you speak to her. 
call her name, stand out in front of the television, uh, turn off the computer, remove the distractions, and do whatever it takes without yelling. James 19.20 says, Be slow to become angry, for a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of life that God desires. Yelling will not bring about a righteous life in your child or anyone else. Uh, one passage here that I, I commonly use when I'm counseling, um, or, you know, back when, when I worked in the youth ministry uh, in California, and every now and then there would be one, one kid, you know, that wanted to talk the whole time and not, was not paying attention. Uh, you know, I brought to the heart of it. Um, you know, the, that one person that you're, you're in a group and you're talking, they're just waiting for the moment. There was one kid, like, we're waiting for the moment for the person to shut up their mouth so they could speak. And they would bring, you know, superhero things. And we're, we're like talking application of the sermon. And nothing to do with superheroes, but that's where he wanted to go. So I remember just going, uh, you know, going, doing studying Proverbs um, 18 and 2, it says, which says, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Um, it, I, I asked this, this kid, why is that you, you don't want to listen what, what others want to say? Well, I just think that what, what they say is, is it's, it's, not, it's not interesting to me. I, I, I'm not interested in what they're saying. Okay, um, and, and why are you interested well, I, I just like superheroes. I want to talk about it. I just, that's what I want to talk about. Well, and then I would read this verse here. Um, so you, you, don't want to, you don't care to listen to them because you're not interested. Um, do you think that you could be a fool? And then I had him read this. You know, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Um, are you just interested in revealing your own mind, or are you showing interest in what others want to say? It's like, well... I just want to say what I want to say. Okay, what does the Bible call that? A fool. Okay, so do you think you're a fool? Well, I just want to say what I want to say. And he kept going. I could not, it was even hard to carry on a conversation because there was always some interruption, always some random thought. And we kept going back to it, you know. We want to be, we want to be wise and someone that gives an answer. In the Proverbs 18:13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. You're just giving some, you're blurting something out. You're not being wise. The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, verse 15, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. You know, could it be that you're missing out on a lot of good things that could make you grow and to make you smarter? And make you more, make you closer to God. And he stopped for a long time, and he would, you know, any time it was hard. I kept asking, I had to keep asking him, "Are you acting like a fool or like a prudent person right now?" And he would stop. It's like, yeah, I'm acting like a fool. What were you saying again? And I had to repeat it again and again and again. But at some point, he realized that this is not a matter of um, me can't, I can't pay attention. No, you can. It's just a matter of you training yourself to think the way that God wants you to think about yourself. So this is just a few examples, and we'll, we'll go back to it with more specifics. 
but I wanted to leave um, at least like a couple of minutes for questions and comments so far. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Uh, it, that's my <laughs> short answer. I don't know how it's done. Uh, they do have a checklist. You know, I, I'm presuming uh, they, they don't have enough time to observe observe you know uh, you know just reading the article from the new york, new york times from a psychiatrist i i'm guessing that it's pretty much like a checklist either they have the parents to fill it in or you know they interview interview them i think uh, to answer your, your question uh, there is a checklist that the doctors sometimes give the school mm. uh, to figure out so the teacher uh, participates the parents participate Mm -hmm. participates. I don't know that that's universally done, but that's mm -hmm. one of the um, elements is to kind of get a broader perspective as to concentration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so particularly in public schools, they, they have those protocols. When, you know, they, they notice that a child can't stand still or, you know, they follow those things, they will give to the school board a suggestion, hey, um, and sometimes the schools actually have already a psychiatrist there that will prescribe and, you know, diagnose and, and prescribe. So, I don't know. Yeah, so you, um, so she's, she's, saying, she's a teacher. Uh, I really appreciate you speaking out on this. Uh, you normally don't like don't have a form or anything. Is more you talk to the parents, yeah. right? Yeah. The the yeah. She just actually mentioned an example there. Some kids only manifest that at school. They don't manifest that at home, and um, a lot of that you know. I some of the thing, some thoughts that I had was sometimes they're they're just not used to that environment, and they think well the house rules don't doesn't apply to here. So basically, you have to train your child to think, no, this, this, you have to behave there. Or there are things that are allowed at home, but they're not allowed at school, <laughs> you know? That just kind of training them also to the different environments. Um, she made a comment there as, as far as uh, having different methodologies. I saw the other day uh, uh, an article recently where they're using games to teach, it's like it's an uh, educational game, computer game, that teaches you know, math or whatever it is because that is so engaging to them, you know, so engaging to their senses that they're using that as a way of uh, a form of education. So it is a, it's a system that's still in, in testing and, you know. Um, I do have concerns with video games. Uh, just, you know, what, what is being there, um, the news that we see, uh, most of these shootings and this stuff, I just get concerned. Um, but, you know, if, if they can come up with something different, educational, <laughs> that will be useful uh, for growth. Um, that's just the creating of an alternative reality sometimes that I think it's not encouraging to, to right thinking. Um, I don't think I would use the word imaginary. <laughs> For them, it's something quite real. Um, you know, I actually had a, a lecture scheduled for OCD. We just won't have enough time at, at this point. But my biblical perspective, you know, is that we can get fixated on things, you know, and get anxious. Does the Bible talk about anxiety? 
It does. Does the Bible talk about us renewing our thinking and, and replacing? You know, there are people that come for counseling that have OCD and, you know, they have same response as, um, you know, going to a therapist, talk therapy. That, that's what they're suggested to, you know, or, or they can be prescribed a medication for anxiety. We, we don't go there, which is, <laughs> you know, um, yes, it, I see it as a spiritual issue. Um, unless there's, I don't know, an unknown cause that is uh, causing them to have hallucinations, you know, some, some metal poisoning, whatever it is, you know. So I don't want to discard totally any organic causes. You know, there's always something that someone can find but I would say it's primarily spiritual. And even if there is an underlying cause, we still treat the spiritual part of it. Yeah. And OCD is, is such a broad category too. You know, we, what we picture is more the perfectionistic part, drawing, doing things perfectly. But there are some OCD people that they have a lot of anxiety and fear. You know, if I don't do this, if I don't step on that square, only in the black squares, and skip the white ones, Something's gonna ha something bad is gonna happen to my family, you know. Or uh, I remember there's just this one thing in Brazil is that if you live your uh, your sandals flipped upside down, it means that your mom's gonna die. It's just like crazy superstition, you know, that people believe in. But they just get so fixated. Well, I gotta go and, and, and look in a house to see if there's anything like that, or if there's a broom behind the door. I I can't that can never happen because something's gonna something bad is gonna happen. So it's not just the perfectionism, sometimes it's, it's a fear of what might happen if I don't do this behavior. Checking the doorknobs, you know, to, to see is it, is it, you know, I can say that I'm OCD sometimes. I go, I'm like, did I lock the door? Did I lock the door? I mean, I should go back and check it. <laughs> so, but some people can go with that and be, um, you know, just afraid. And the way we really train them is helping them to think, can you trust the Lord's sovereignty? You know, yes, you have chalked a door once. You don't need to go there again. Um, what is the worst thing that could happen? Well, a thief, you know, someone can mug, my, can get into the house, break in, and kill us. That's the worst thing that could happen. No, that's not the worst thing that could happen. You know, the worst thing that could happen is that you're going to face a holy God who not only can kill the soul, or can kill the body, but also the soul send the soul to hell. So if you're safe in his arms, that is not the worst thing that can happen. Um, you're, the Lord um, has you, has your soul, and you're just going to be in glory first. <laughs> um, but it, it's just helping them to reframe their, their mind thinking, you know, maybe is, is the Lord using this situation to grow me in, depend, in dependence of him? So um, that is like my two-minute um, explanation on OCD, but obviously we deal with compassion with anything, you know, we, we speak the truth in love, um, helping them to reframe reality. So let's pray. Gracious Father, you were a holy and wonderful God with perfect words they're complete they're not lacking anything and they're sufficient to offer hope and help for those in need lord i pray that um, we would be an encouragement to families with hyperactive kids or inattentive kids 
um, they belong to you, Lord, and we want to dedicate them to you. We want to um, trust in, in your principles that you left in your word to help us to, to train them. I pray, Father, that give us wisdom too as we navigate through different things, as we know that we are uh, embodied souls, that there are physical issues that might be involved, and we want to be mindful of that, Father. Pray that you would also not be too dogmatic um, as we speak on these matters, um, as there are some that might be hurting through them. Do you pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to speak truth, but to speak the truth in love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed. <laughs>